Hello, and welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to do uh, a kind of a campaign pitch me for me. Uh, but before we do that, Buddy, why don't you show the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. On this podcast, on this, this, with an S, podcast, we like to talk about games. Campaign Pitch Me is, uh, is something we've done a couple of times on the podcast. It's just a, a loose pitch for a tabletop game campaign. I think we've done two or three of them by yeah. now. I think this is your first one, though, right? Yes, this is this is my first one, and it is... Popping your cherry. Let's do it. I'm so yeah. excited. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it is not as well thought out as yours are. Um, I, have, I, don't have, I have basically uh, a bunch of really, what I think are really neat setting ideas, um, and uh, I, I have a, a loose idea of what I want that to be in terms of uh, uh, in terms of the campaign, but it, it's more about the setting I'm hoping to flesh out uh, what, what that campaign actually could be. Gotcha. Right. I, I super feel that. So, And also, to be clear, is it like built for a system like Pathfinder, Starfinder? Yes, yeah. This, is, this, should, this should be a pathfinder game it would work in D it would work in any fantasy s setting really but like the idea is for pathfinder elves um, and dwarves and all that yeah, yeah. yeah so, okay so um basically the uh the the idea is um in this kind of uh, this is taking place in, in an alternate world it might be a variation of the uh, the Rosarin idea we've talked about before um but it's essentially um uh, part part and parcel of this is is that there are like kind of like some of some of the variations of the core fantasy races are a little bit different, um, and this particular variation has that one subspecies of elf are like vaguely kind of Indian inspired, and uh, their capital city uh, is called Udana Mahal, and it's a floating city um, in kind of, it's it's a floating city that that used to travel throughout uh, kind of around the world, but isn't his for a long time, just kind of sat over this one area. Um, uh, and, and kind of the, the, the contours of this are that, um, uh, the, that the governance is a little bit weird. There's no um, kind of like formal government. There's like, uh, I think I, I, I forget the, ex the exact number, but there's like um, some number of merchant houses that control every, that, that are kind of like the ruling bodies. Um, like, the, like guilds or something. Yeah, yeah. Like guild, like, like think like, think like, um, um, or like, like, like merchant families, like kind of like, um, like merchant republics in, uh, in, in CK2 or something like that. Okay. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, kind of like, uh, I also think Eberron had something like this. That would make sense. System. Um, uh, but it's essentially, um, the only kind of, uh, uh, rules that hold are contracts that are made between, uh, various and sundry people. And there, there is one kind of, uh, uh, compact that's kind of like the the ruling um uh it, it kind of uh binds everybody together and, and everybody's kind of like a, agrees to follow the rules by this and the the rules include that the the arbitrating body is this guy called the grand arbiter um who everybody sends uh a bunch of like so like every house will send uh, a large or uh, a regiment of soldiers to um uh like yearly uh to maintain, uh, to, to, to enforce the laws and enforce the contracts. And he's, he's supposed to be okay. a super neutral party. Um, part of this is that he's a human, um, and he serves for life, but because he's a human and everybody else is an elf, um, uh, he, he turns over relatively rapidly in comparison. He's also not, you know, he has, it's, it's not like he's coming from one of these families and he's got like, uh, ties that could potentially cause a conflict of interest or anything. Um, and, uh, he sends out, uh, and so, 
they he, he's in charge of this this body that that enforces all of these contracts um and like there are very few rules in the compact other than that you will you will uh, uh, uh you you will abide by the compact you will respect the arbiter's decision if you decide not to you will the soldiers the the forces of the arbiter will enforce those decisions upon you um and there's been relative peace for a while there are also some neat little things that i thought up of in here like it's i think it's like 13 or 14 houses and like 12 of them are elves and like one of them's like um so in another part of this world um is that there are uh dwarves that are roughly russian inspired they're like one subrace of the dwarves and they're slavers um and they have managed to um they've managed to like they, they basically bought out a, a a previously dying elf house um and, and managed to get, get themselves in and then like uh there's also like uh uh, where, where the city is hovering, uh, there's it casts this big shadow, um, and underneath is kind of like this. Like, I call it like the undercity, um, and it's just this like kind of slummy area where like a bunch of like you know like poor people live, um, of, of various sundry races. They're kind of like the the repressed underclass in in uh, in in this in this setting, um, and then at some point, a bunch of them uh, or a handful of them managed to. Uh, get a, a a basically a flying island and send a regiment to the arbiter and like they like by the rules of the compact they count and then they they close the loophole. that's all not like super important it's just kind of like little pieces of flavor um that I that I thought were neat um but it's essentially the 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 idea is is uh uh the the party would be um basically a group of uh, kind of mercenaries working under the arbiter because the arbiter has a, uh, a a a duty that he needs um, that he needs to be handled um, outside of kind of the regular circumstances um, because it's not directly dealing with uh, kind of uh, uh, not directly dealing with um, uh, city business or. Um, I haven't quite figured, this is part of where it's like very loose, right? I haven't quite figured out what the problem is. I haven't quite figured out why he needs to hire a band of adventurers to handle it instead of um, doing it himself. Um, but the idea is kind of like it's it's this, um, you know, uh, urban-ish campaign where you do a bunch of kind of like, uh, excuse me, uh, uh pure adventuring work but like there's like this political bent to it because you have to bounce between the different families and you're working for the arbiter but you're, you're not officially recognized by him and uh uh the the thing the end point that i have is that kind of the big reveal is that the arbiter is actually he's a human but he's like a human wizard that's that has like granted himself immortality and he's been like the arbiter for like years and years and years um, and this is kind of like against, like, like you know, like this would be a big scandal if it was revealed. But he like runs things very well, so like maybe it's not so bad after all. So that's kind of like the very rough contours of what I have so far. Um, do you have any so thoughts? There's, so there's kind of like a conflict of like practicality versus principality in yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, I feel that. Yeah. Um. So you you have any other? thoughts yeah so part of me feels like that like sounds like a a film noir structure in a way right where like you know adventure a bunch of adventurers get hired but like things aren't super quite what they seem and it gets it gets like a little bit more complicated um over time i am i'm very fascinated by the idea um 
especially when it comes to group, you know, to somebody like like uh, a quote unquote grand arbiter of like the cooperation that happens between law enforcement and um, and like criminality. Or even, like, foreign interests, right? Like, Sicario, the movie that I've referenced a couple of times, is functionally about this, right? Like, the, like, part of that movie is about saying, you know what, the chaos of taking down the drug cartels is not worth the, like, the, like, fulfilling the principled request of let's take down the drug cartels, and they ultimately bring order to a lawless system in a way that is beneficial right which is a pretty dark thing to say but also at the end of the day right like if it is if it is a system that works and does bring order to that lawlessness right like how much of that is you know like is worthwhile kind of a thing and so i feel like that th there is something of a question kind of along those lines especially like you know if the pcs are being led along um a, a path of kind of power consolidation for or by the grand arbiter where it becomes you know like where you know if i'm if i'm a player character and i'm essentially stomping out dissidents of of one variety or another right and even if those dissidents are bad or loathsome in some you know like in some way or another right like at what point are you willing to kind of sacrifice you know, like each of these things. And I feel like and the, the the cool thing about that is you can almost kind of make it like a step system where like the more integrated the PCs get into that question, the tougher and tougher the decisions become. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. So like maybe, so maybe at, fr at first it's, you know, going out and doing some small scale, you know, like kind of like whatever, right? But after the third or the fourth mission and you're going and you're, beating up a bunch of you know whatever the whatever the equivalent of anarchist college students would be for this like elf society you know what i mean like then that adds, then then that asks like a real question of the pcs and i also think that like that that it, uh, it should be a very real question i don't think that this is a thing where like if the arbiter ends up being lawful evil or whatever like that would feel kind yeah of yeah no I, I i agree with you right like you 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 want them to make the the uh, the, the tough choice um, no, I'm, I'm thinking that like, you know, just some ideas that are, they're bouncing around in my head is something like, um, like, um, troublemakers in the undercity, right? Like it's a thing that he's like, um, it's essentially maybe he, he's contracted you guys to be contracted the party to be kind of like a, a secret police, um, that deals with this, 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 this group in the undercity that's causing a lot of havoc, right? Like it was kind of like the, um, you know, like the terrorist freedom fighter uh, kind of, you know, uh, dynamic. And it's like you, you, you know, they could easily be seen as either one because they're extremely like violent, but they are kind of like um, trying to get out from under this, this yoke of oppression. So it's kind of sympathetic, maybe something like that. Um, um, I've got a couple other ingredients to throw into this stew that were like ideas I came up with that are more related to the city than directly related to, related to the campaign, um, which is... Um, this idea that I call um, it's 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 a tad dark, but I, I call them uh, contract children. So, um, in the United States law, um, kids can't be subject to contracts, right? Like any, any contract you sign under eighteen years of age, you can void if you choose to, um, until you turn eighteen. Um, and my thought or my idea was that like there's a similar provision in the uh, in the compact, right? Like this is a thing that they all that all the families agreed to. 
um, because they all decided that, you know, they don't want to have, like, houses, like, preying on each other's children, kind trying to get them to sign, like, uh, uh, contracts to, like, catch each other in, in loops because, you know, you know, at, at some level, they're all kids, and they all want to see their families continue. So this is this is a, a uh, kind of a like it was it was meant to protect kind of like the children of the of the families. Um, but what this has turned into is that like you get like street urchins because because uh, kids can't be held to these contracts. You get street urchins to go do like acts of like um, subterfuge and like corporate es- corporate espionage um, because they can't be held accountable to anything. Like they they're not like if you catch. Uh, one of these street urchins spying on you and it's traced back to a family, you can't actually ca- call them to accord because that kid can't be held to any of these contract things. Um, and part of this was like, you know, like maybe like, you know, you send your disfavored sons or your bastards to do this kind of work. And, uh, you know, the best, like these contract children, um, you know, like work really hard, you know, like they're, they're, they're kind of feared, but they're all kids. And once they age out, they go either do something else or they become soldiers for the arbiter was kind of like, like, part of that that system there right like that those kids are typically sent to the arbiter to be the soldiers from that house because they're they can't be used as as kind of like these contract dodging children anymore um but they are highly trained and would be useful in their tithe to kind of the the central authority um right right to keep order um uh, so that 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 was that was kind of another idea again i'm not sure exactly how that would fit into this um, is there? Do you think that there's any kind of like primogeniture or something like that for for the merchants? Um, I would say that that probably varies house to house. Is is the way I uh, the way I thought about it? Like, yeah, because I because something I've always found compelling is the idea that like primogeniture kind of encourages second or third children to like act out and be shitty and not care about things because like they know that the firstborn is going to get everything um and so like that's how you know like in medieval times is how you get like a lot of like knights errant and shit like that yeah um, because they are members of the nobility but they don't own anything because it all went to their brother or whatever kind of thing or or they become a bishop so you know you don't have to deal with deal with that or whatever right like yeah yeah, 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 all the ck2 stuff right is there is there a religion um i haven't thought about it um at all actually what what are your thoughts on that okay so actually a bigger question might be is there a caste system in the same way that like traditional indian culture has a caste system um so not not per se um i was thinking of it more of kind of like there's like you know the the members of the aristocracy and everyone else um and like uh and just it's kind of like the idea was kind of like if you have means, right? Like even even if you're not one of the families, but you're a wealthy person somehow, you're probably mm-hmm. you probably didn't gain your wealth in the city, um, but you can you know uh, like technically no one's barred from the city, but it's one of those things where like um, you don't like it's you know it's not like there's a staircase to the floating city. You have to figure out how to get up there, and so if you're living in the undercity, you probably will never get up there unless you, you know you you have some some means to. Well, what if that's the other way around? What if, like, the Undercity is, like, a state of exile or banishment? Do you know what I mean? Huh. Where, like, access to the city itself is restricted and protected or whatever, and, like, losing your access to the city it throws you down into the Undercity. Do you know what I mean? Huh. That's 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 interesting. Um, 
Okay, I, so I, I don't think the two need to be mutually exclusive, right? Like, I think right. I, I yeah. think I think there's space for it's like you know being banished to the Undercity is a thing that happens, but it's not like like I I do like kind of the idea that it's like a kind of like an open marketplace that like looks really kind of like bright and shiny on the top and for the well to do, but like un, like you know literally the underbelly of the city, right? Like like literally like sitting in the shadow of this monolith that never sees the sun because there's this giant structure parked over it. Um, of kind of like the downtrodden, but like including like exiled people down there makes makes sense. I think. Um, like, what are you thinking? Like a like a you know like in one of these houses, there's like a shitty second son who's been exiled down there and is like. Foaming. So I, I was actually thinking about that as a as a version of like you know like insofar as this is a whole campaign, right? Right. Um, you know. The the PCs are working for like the Grand Arbiter, but they are doing so with plausible deniability. Right. And part of that plausible deniability is about you know them getting exiled to the Undercity so that they can essentially do undercover work against like these whatever extremist revolutionaries or something kind of along those lines. That makes sense. I also oh. sort sort of kind of like um, a like. The, like like a religious like a cult is kind of the wrong word but it's the, also the right word for i guess sort of what i'm proposing but like a religious revolution that is that you know what i mean that it's like insofar as this is a society built on kind of the market and these merchant houses and stuff like that and you are someone who is you know denied even like the grace of like the sun on your face or whatever, right? I I feel like that's a really easy thing for somebody to start praying to a god to fix, right? Right. It is a god who can who can, you know, cast that city down and bring it back down to earth kind of thing. And so you almost get kind of like that like repressive puritanical sort of uh you know, sort of like feeling out of it where there's a whole cult whose dedication is to bringing the Sky Fortress city to the ground because it is idolatrous or something kind of along those lines. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I definitely... Uh, I definitely... I, th I think that that's neat. Um, I think that could, that, that could actually work well. And, like, you know... Um, yeah, actually, I, th I think... That, like, th there's also, like, I think room for, like twists and turns. I, I, I think you were right in your initial assessment that this is supposed to, like, this is vaguely noirish. Um, I've been reading a lot of Dresden Files, which is, like, noir fantasy, but set in the modern age, so that's probably where I'm drawing some of this inspiration from. Um, uh, and so I, I think that, like, you, you could have, like, the, the head of this cult is actually, like, one of these, like, dispossessed or exiled, like, second sons or something, you know, like, some some, like, somebody who used to be up there and he, he really doesn't believe any of the things that he's spewing, but he knows he's charismatic and just kind of like is so mad that he just wants to watch the world burn or something like that. Um, I think you could like, I feel like a lot like, like you, you I think the, the right way to play this would be something like um, you kind of like get, an, get, get a, uh, a feel for like who your individual characters are. And like, if you've got a character who's like, you know, this is all bullshit you know, revolution now, right? Like you show, like, um, uh, you you kind of like show one of these antagonists as being like like the extreme version of that. It's like, oh, like you know, like you know, 
I am that, but for like the grace of God, right? Like, you know, you know, you know yeah. But, um, I think that's like a, an effective narrative tool. I think there's a lot of space for that, right? Like the head, the head of that cult could be um, any of those things. Um, I was like this. I, I was also thinking that like, uh, like campaign traits to go along with this kind of thing would be something like you know one of your one of your party members might be like a second son noble. One of them might be like a contract child that is just aged out. Um, one of them might be just kind of like a a wandering mercenary um, that like you know saw the, saw the job and thought the pay was good um you know uh, uh or, or something along along these kinds of lines just like little um roles that you could kind of like build in to kind of like give it a really tight tie to like what's happening in the city because I, I think that like this works better when like um when like the the characters are are for the most part really involved in in kind of the world and like care about like the 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 fate of of the city, does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I also sort of think that in a way, like if I was writing book one for this, I think book one would be very black and white, right? Because it's almost like a red herring right. at that point where like you know you are going and being essentially deployed against a cult of rovagug or something like that and obviously you're not going to side with the fucking rovagug cultists right? Right, right but then like later down the line when you are being sent on a very similar mission but then this one is a lot more empathetic you know and like the leader is charismatic and not a crazy person and they're and they're kind of asking for or even demanding you know very kind of like reasonable reforms that sort of allows you to i think that allows you to do, do two things one it allows somebody to kind of like do something bad hypothetically right like rep repressing this like cult of rovagug or whatever and then revisit that decision and be like wow I wasn't really thinking about it at the time, but I kind of judged these guys by the, you know, by the cover. I, I judged this book by its cover sort of right. thing. Um, or at the same time, it also gives a justification for somebody who wants to stay on that path, right? Because they say, well, now this leader is like really charismatic and these reforms are reasonable. But as this movement picks up steam, it's going to end up just like that cult of Rovagug that we dealt with. Or whatever. And I, th I feel like that sort of thing, where it's like you introduce sort of like the world and the plight, let's say, in very black and white terms and then gray it up over time, you know, like probably into like book two or book three or something kind of along those lines. Um, like that's really effective. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think I definitely uh, agree with you there. Um, uh yeah, I, th I think that, that, that that's that's actually super a, a super uh, effective idea. I, I like that a lot. Um, uh, I was trying to think of like how how to kind of like tie, like because you know, like I said, like there, there's like very few laws of the land as they exist, right? Like um, because the, the merchant houses don't care, right? Like they 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 don't care so long as their contracts with each other are respect their contracts with the outside world are. Um, with respect to their neighbors are respected or, and uh, the only care they have about the undercity is that it keep kind of like, you know, it's, it's that it's, you know, relatively tame and that like, if they need to go like pick up cheap labor, they can go get, get it from there. Um, right. 
and so like that gives the arbiter a lot of kind of uh, like a, a lot of leeway in, in terms of what he's asking the the PCs to do. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's fair. That's really fair. I also th- I also sort of think that the decision point around the arbiter has to happen somewhere in the middle of the story, right? Yeah, in, no, in a sort right. of in a, in a sense, it's kind of like the decision surrounding how you guys wanted to treat Barzillai Thrune in Hell's Rebels. Right, where it's like, you can't end the story on that note because it has to be like a real decision point with like real consequences. So it's something that happens in like book three, book four stage, right? Which kind of creates a Y shape for the story structure to a certain extent because on one hand, you either have the players commit to the Grand Arbiter's sort of like schemes and that is one trajectory or you know, rebel against them or whatever. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the, the trickiest part is probably, like, setting up that decision so that, like, it's not automatically repel against the Grand Arbiter because I think that's, like, the uh, the kind of, like, usually portrayed as, like, the right decision in these types of storylines, yeah. right? That, like, you know, but for, like... But for all his good intentions, he's still, like, a, a bastard that's, like, doing something. Okay, okay. No, I actually, I actually forgot this because I, I see where it is. It is in the relationship with these merchant houses to one another, which, it, you know what I mean? Where, like, there's some conflict or some dispute about, like, the merchant houses, and it's getting bad, and it's getting bloody, right? And the Grand Arbiter is able to exert his power, essentially through the NP, or through the PCs, right, in order to resolve that, right? And stop the city from turning into, like, a bloodbath, you know trade war that becomes like a real war sort of sort of thing and so you can give the npcs or you sorry you can give the pcs a clear definable downside right if you toss the grand arbiter right because even if you toss the grand arbiter and a new one pops up do you know what i mean that that will never solve the trust problem that is created by the npcs outing him and so you are definitionally in this place where it's kind of like the downside isn't even necessarily that the Grand Arbiter, or like the the downside to removing the Grand Arbiter by by spilling his secret, right? You know, you tell you tell the newspapers or whatever it is, kind of thing um, about it, and like the public and the public realizes that he's been, you know, duping them for however long, including these merchant houses, right? Um, you can't reestablish that system of of governance at least not immediately which means that immediately after this takes place all of these houses are going to like completely fuck on each other and it's going to like you know make the city awful <laughs> yeah okay and then and then you keep him and if you keep him installed he keeps that in ch- but like so like so that's i think a really good consequence for the the killing him aspect or the you know dethroning him aspect I, I think the the kind of maybe the the weakness there is that the opposite as oh, it's, it's not providing a positive case. That's fair. Well, I'm that, well, that, I, mean, that, that I was, don't know if that's what you're going to say. That wasn't that. exactly where I was going, but it's the, the opposite case, which is um, like leaving him in power doesn't have like necessarily in like an immediate like bad effect. It's just kind of like an existential one, like you've let a monster stay on the throne for the sake of peace. But that's not like a an, an, like an actionable thing that comes to a head, right? Like that's yeah. it. Um. That, that's kind of uh, 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 that's just kind of like you know like a, like a you, like you know one of these has is like leads to a denouement and the other one ends the campaign right there um, kind of thing 
Um, well, which, which one? Sorry, which one ends the campaign? Uh, the one where you where you like help like leave him in power, right? Um, unless unless your your suggestion is that like the the rest of that, the rest of that. Uh, sorry, that was the local train. I, I'm sure you could hear that. The train uh, that you teased. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad. I'm very glad that you that the train was able to make an appearance. Yeah, I, I really I wanted too. that Chekhov's gun. To <laughs> <take off. laughs> um, but yeah, that like so so. So let, let's say they hit this decision point. They're either going to upend the so if they upend the the arbiter, then the, the the back half of the campaign is them resolving kind of like this 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 massive conflict that they've effectively caused. Correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and so but but if they leave the arbiter in power, what does the rest of the campaign look like? Is yeah. That a question. Yeah. See, I feel like in both cases, the danger always has to be that the city. That whatever keeps the city aloft falls, and that's the coolest oh, okay. part. Yeah, yeah. No, Do you know what I mean? Like, right. if there is an apocalyptic, you know, like in, in a lot of superhero movies, this is what it always comes down to, right? Like in Guardians of the Galaxy, the apocalypse is, you know, uh, Ronan with the with the power gem destroying the Nova Corp planet or whatever. Or in in two, it's that like this like flower is going to bulb up and you know take over Atlanta or whatever, you know. Fucking whatever, yeah. or, it was, like, or like in Avengers: Age of Ultron, where there's a floating city. Um. Yeah, 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 exactly. But like, so the thing yeah. has to be that I feel like in either case, the thing has to be the danger is this that whatever whatever keeps the city aloft is going to fail, and the city is going to plummet, and everyone is going to die. Um, in that, you know, like no, in that apocalypse scenario, that's just, but like, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's part of me says that that is unreasonable because it can never come true. Right. You know what I mean? It's saying, the kind yeah. of thing where it's like, listen, in man of steel, you, Zod can't ever successfully terraform the earth because if he does the movie ends, you know what I mean? So there really right. isn't like, you know, a real set of snakes because the the villain can never actually accomplish it unless you wanted to do something crazy like you know the end of book five is that the villain's plan goes off and the city plummets and then it's like a post-apocalypse or something like that no i mean um, that could be like a second like i think i'm okay like with, a second campaign actually Whoa. or or like you know like that the the idea is is that the pcs might actually fail at that right like that yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to okay. set up so that that might happen um which is interesting for, like, you know, theoretically, this is part of a fictional world that I want to build. So it's like, oh, well, the timeline splits right here, and you have either, you know, your post-city fall or your whatever. I, I, I feel like, you know, yeah. I mean, I feel like that is a natural piece of the, you yeah. know, like, that's kind of how you want to you wanna make it and how you want to kind oh, of Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, definitely. Uh, absolutely. This is, this is like, a, like a video game that has multiple endings in the sequel. There's one of them as a canon ending, right? Like, um I like it, it. It can definitely work. I just you know. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the city has to have a real danger of falling. Like I, I like it. It can't not happen. I, I don't think. I don't think you prescribe. I think that's actually the the like end point of the campaign, right? Like either, um, either the like like the, the last thing that happens in the campaign is, uh, the city falls. The city stays afloat, and if it falls, like bad ending i guess right like i, I think i think that's an okay i mean maybe there's for- a version of things where the pcs want the city to fall 
like maybe that's the maybe that's like the the coda to this whole thing with like the noble houses fighting or whatever it just generates so much strife and anxiety that the only thing that the pcs can do is blow it all up right you know what i mean so which I, is which would be kind of like cool and ironic hypothetically speaking if they start the campaign by you know, dealing with, like, a cult of uh, Rovaga kind of, like, XBs, right? Who hypothetically want to, you know, Rovaga is the god of destruction. He wants to destroy everything sort of thing. So, like, a version of things where, like, they come around to it. They're like, oh, yeah, no, this is this is too fucked up. We need to destroy this. Yeah. Um, I think the, I think, again, that has to, like, you know, the players have to make that choice, right? Like, like the, yeah, the, both yeah. choices are, you know, like, you know, the, the choice about the Arbiter is, is, like, like step one of this and then like the city falling is like another step of this. Um, yeah. Although I do think, I do think that like, so, so the unbalanced thing is that like, I think that there's still a good story where like the PCs want the city to stay afloat and they fail at that somehow. Right. Like the, like whatever set of encounter, whatever set of factors needs to go, they just screw it up. Um, yeah. And it falls anyway. I think that's a legitimate conclusion. I just, I don't think that the version of things where, the PCs want the city to fall and they fail at that and it stays up is, is a satisfying conclusion to the story. Oh, I, I mean, I think that that could be satisfying, especially if you frame it like, you know, okay, let's say hypothetically they want to, um, they want the city to fall, but they are being stopped by, you know, so ima imagine this, imagine you said spend the first three books, not just setting up like bad guys in like the moral quandary or whatever, but also setting up a lot of supporting characters, who, other people who work with the Arbiter or on his behalf, who are willing to be his kind of like mouthpiece, right? And it is these people that they are now in direct conflict by, you know, by like suggesting or saying that the city needs to be destroyed, essentially, in order to, you know, like in order to solve the problem kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? And like, I feel like there's a lot of like weight or like stakes to that. Yeah. Uh, can, can you, can you, I, I'm not quite following you. Can, can, can you, can you say that again? In so, so what I mean to say is like, okay, so, okay, uh, book four rolls around and all of a sudden you find out that the, okay, yeah, so book four rolls around, all of, all of a sudden the, the PCs have to make a decision and then they say, you know what, the Arbiter is, is you know, he may not be the most true de definition of power hungry, but he is lying to the people and he is propped up by this lie and the people deserve the truth. And so they out the Grand Arbiter and it kind of completely delegitimizes him inside of like a day, right? Or something like that. Like and he's deposed or he's ignored or whatever. And then book five is dealing with the fallout among these noble houses or not these noble houses, these merchant houses who are now completely unrestrained from tearing each other's throats out right and then the end of book five confirms the fact that you know what there is just no salvaging this situation and so the pcs you know maybe they team up with some villain from earlier or whatever because they're like okay no your original plan to blow up the city is like actually a good plan it's the only thing that we can like possibly do and it includes things like we're going to evacuate the undercity so that none of these people who are you know, kind of like defenseless get heard and, you know, like kind of like all of these other sorts of things. But the people that they are now fighting, right, are the remnants of the, um, uh, it's not even the noble houses necessarily, right? But it is the remnants of like the Arbiter's office oh, right. and his okay. like, you know, like his Arbiter team or whatever. And so, 
Like, I feel like that reversal is, like, interesting and complex enough that it kind of, like, carries it through. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I think there's a version of this where, like, um, like I, th- I think, one, you want that, that villain to kind of float. Like, you don't necessarily want to set exactly who it is. Because I can see a version of this where um, the villain is kind of, or, like, the people who want the city to fall are um, this cult. They're, they're, like, one, they're, like, this kind of, like, you know, off-brand house that I was talking about that kind of like inserted themselves into the mix via technicality. And they're they're still kind of like, they, they were under city distance in the first place. They just want to see the whole thing burn. Um, I think there's a version of it where it is the Grand Arbiter that you've that you've exposed, right? He's like, I'm going to burn this all down. Um, uh, and I think that you want to pick kind of like who out of those based on kind of like the, the, the demeanor of your party. Because um, like, I kind of want like uh, this is I, again the, the apologies this is so rough but like I want um, kind of like part of this is to be like interactions with the different houses um, and so like if you're buddying up to like this kind of like you know common man's house and then all of a sudden they're like yeah we're gonna we're gonna burn it all down we're gonna evacuate the intercity and then it's going to fall and I you know by consequence um, so actually this this works so so my idea like I hadn't quite figured out. What, I haven't quite figured out what holds up the houses um, and the city. Because, so, I was not clear about this. So, um, the how like the, there's the city, and then all of the houses are like have their own private flying islands, right? Um, so they're oh, okay. so they're all separate, right? And so my idea was that all of the all of like kind of like the normal houses are and and the city are held up by some magical force, maybe like uh, an, an air jinn or something like that. Um, but this kind of like off-brand, like this kind of like weird self-insert house is, is flying by a mechanical means, right? Like they've, they like steampunked something together and they've got this house flying and technically they count as a flying house. And so by the rules of the compact there, you know, the, the city must recognize them as a house and everybody kind of grouses about it for a little while. Um, and so like if they're the villains, right, like whatever, whatever is going to knock down the city also causes the other like 12 merchant houses to fall out of the sky too because you're basically disbanding whatever magic is keeping it keeping it right, afloat yeah, yeah. um and then the and you know the 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 uh the this other house is fine with it. it's like we're we're fine right like we're we're you know we're, we're flying by a mechanical means so we don't have to worry about us falling um and when this happens there will be one house left and it will be us and uh you know the pros- the prosperity will be ours or something like you know pick your um pick your your kind of like rationalization based on the part like this is I think I think that's really important is that you want this to be flexible enough that your kind of like consequences fits your party well right like um if you've got a bunch of like uh do-gooders turns out that the people that you've butted up to are actually assholes this entire time that they're just power hungry on their own they've been using you um if they're kind of like uh uh, if, if they're kind of like practic, practic, uh, practical people that have been trying to do the the good thing, they realize or they're the, the trying to like, you know, maintain like a, a, a order in the city that there's there's some other thing that's like, uh, that you know, you know, you, you've, you know, like if if everything goes to its conclusion, um, yeah, there'll be order, but it'll be of the kind of like iron fisted, uh, uh, iron fisted totalitarian uh, version that, that that you can't abide or, or something like that, right? You you want to you want you want this to re- resonate with your party, so you need to base it on how they feel. 
um, yeah. about things. I also think that that makes sense when it comes to like the villain or whatever, right? Like if they want to go break a villain out of jail that they locked up, it should be you know you know in a certain sense it, it kind of sounds like it should be one that they choose, where over the course of the of the first couple of books they're locking up they're do going on these adventures and they're locking up, you know all of these all of these people and then they get to go back and choose one or or more you know to like be on their new team when they decide they want to like turn on things or whatever right like i feel like that's like a compelling choice that the players really get to kind of like get to kind of make you yeah know what i mean yeah um yeah no i i absolutely agree i'm, I'm also envisioning a, a version of this for like um you know, like, essentially, like, if you draw, like, this this Punnett square, for lack of a better term, of, like, you know, Arbiter, no Arbiter, City Falls, City Stays Afloat, like, no Arbiter, City Stays Afloat, like, maybe a version of this is that, you know, um, they expose the Arbiter, but then they find out, like, after the fact, it turns out that he's the one that's keeping everything afloat, like, he's, like, this, you know, like, immortal mage, um, and the magic that would have kept the city afloat, like, ran out a long time ago, but he basically, because he enjoyed his position of influence... Um, he's, he's been keeping the city afloat and either he refuses to maintain it or like, uh, the, the other, uh, or like he wants to, he, he doesn't care and he wants to kill, still maintain it because he's fundamentally a decent person. Um, but like, you know, the, the merchant houses are calling for his head because he's deceived them for so long and, and you know, they, they won't listen to you that he's actually holding everything afloat or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think this is all. Um, like, I think that this variability is super important. How would you suggest going about writing this? Because I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, you know, I could write like, you know, like if, if not, not that I'm planning on, on actually committing this to paper, but like if, if I wanted to write this so that somebody else could run it, um, how would you like, would you just like write like, you know, three versions of book four <laughs> or, you know, whatever, how, how would you handle that? God, that is a really interesting question. Um, see, the funny thing is, is that like when you are writing your own campaign, you have a lot of flexibility to yeah. make those decisions on the fly. Because like I, you know, I hypothetically there is a version of Hell's Rebels, right, where you guys followed through on the war with Bards Lythrune. Book four was taking the city back, right, and then book five and book six were you know, setting up your new government and doing all of this stuff with, uh, with like Chiliax and everything like that. Um, but we kind of ended up in this position where, you know, where, where the, all of that hypothetical storytelling never really had to happen. And I'm sure I would have reused a lot of similar plot points. Um, you know, like obviously reconciling the relationship between Chiliax and, um, and Ravenel is like a fundamental thing to the story. Right. And so like, both versions of that include a, you know, you know, a, a plot with rhino terrorists or whatever, right? In fact, that whole that whole bit was stuff that I was adapting out of the sixth book, I believe, um, which you know was built on the uh, uh, was so which was like built on a a railroad narrative, right? Like where there wasn't that kind of uh, yeah, yeah, where that wasn't that kind of a choice. So in some spots, I think that it it w there would be overlap, right? And you would be able to say, oh well, in order to you know like in order to either uphold the wards that are keeping the city afloat or destroy the wards that are keeping the city afloat, they need to go to 
you know, the ancient magister's archive where the original ritual is, you know, is locked away in a library or whatever. And so, like, that, you know, like, that set of encounters could be, um, you know, like, that, that set of encounters could be, like, shared across kind of no matter what. But I definitely do think that you needed it to make your own... Um, yeah, I, I, you need to like make your own story because otherwise you fall into that trap of like. I mean, I, I think people are wrong who do this, by the way, but like where people say that because the Walking Dead, the Telltale Walking Dead game, there really was there was a lot of stuff that you repeated no matter which side of the of the decision you made um, happens. Right, that that kind of like removes some of the choice about it or whatever, and I think that that's wrong. But I do think that players, you know, feel that way about stuff, and there's not not much you can do. Yeah, I I, I think I think part of that is is the strength of this medium, right? Like that you can kind of do what you want without having to like worry about replayability or anything. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think part of this answer might just be that like pre-written adventure paths can't handle this kind of variation. Um, and so you kind of have to spin it yourself. And, like, if you wanted to write this up into, like, a an adventure, like, it'd have to be, like, either, like, you know, loose kind of, like, story beats without, like, connective tissue. Um, or, like, uh, or, or like it would have to be, like, an inordinate, inordinate amount of work. Which, like, I can see that being an interesting product, right? Where, like, you know, there's, like, one book one, two book twos, four book threes. You know, like, just, like, doubling each one and, like, you know. Yeah. I'm, you know, like, I'm an insane person that has written, like, 47 books, and you'll use six of them, <laughs> um, uh, which I think could be neat, um, but I also don't think it's a thing that anybody would, would in their right mind, do. Uh, I also think, to a certain extent, I mean, it's a little tough to do this because, like, levels aren't very modular, but I also yeah. think that there's a certain amount of, like, I almost sort of like an idea where the first, let's say, in my, so in my head, the, the decision about the Arbiter comes at the end of book four, um, which is completely arbitrary, but it essentially sets up that the first four books are dealing with you working for the Grand Arbiter in some variety or another. Um, and I always kind of like the idea that, like, out outside of sort of, like, an early tutorial, right? So, like, let's say defeating the Cult of Rovagug or whatever is kind of, like, the early tutorial. The story itself is actually kind of a la carte and episodic and can go in any order that you want. Like, right. here are the different things that I need to get accomplished, and it doesn't matter what order you accomplish them in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, no, th th that makes sense. Um and like, because I I like I like choices like that because it lets the party first of all it lets the party prioritize, um, which is something that I think is very compelling for for players, right? Like this is something that happened in book two of Hell's Rebels, where you know like there were three different goals you needed to accomplish, and they were all on a time frame, so you needed to prioritize which ones were you were going to do like first, and I think that that's like a strong impetus for players, right? When you have a choice between a bunch of different plot threads, and you have to make a decision about which one goes, you know, which one is the number one most important sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and maybe that that leaves plot threads that aren't mined. Like maybe you know, like maybe there are there are eight different threads, but only six of them get completed, or something kind of along those lines. Before you know, the PCs get get all of the all of the pieces to the conspiracy puzzle, or whatever. Yeah. No, that that, that makes sense. I think that kind of like leads to this situation where like essentially I think what you, what you want to do is you want to like kind of set these threads up and like kind of let, let them hang and then like only finish like only write out the, the ones that they end up biting on um, yeah. 
which is, it, it, it's it's interesting, right? Like, so I don't. This this is just like a, a a weird problem, but like you know, I feel like if like at the end of the campaign, you know, the uh, the players from you say like, well, what would have happened if we followed up on print plot thread X? You'd be like, you're like, oh uh, well, it just you would have done the same thing, but it would have gone somewhere else. It's kind of like a disappointing answer. Um, but I think that's kind of got to be like this. This is like the 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 tabletop version of of this Walking Dead thing, right? Like it's like I would have yeah. just like rearranged the facts so that you would have all like like you would have figured it out and would have been through a different avenue, but it would have been you know like a lot of the same thing. Um, also, I think it, it kind of like changes the context in which some yeah. of these things get accomplished, right? Like teaming up with Rovago cultists is different than teaming up with you know agitated magical university students or something kind of along those lines right um, right and so even if you you know even if you kind of like end up at uh the same the same kind of like decision point um and that is a real choice you get to make about it or whatever how you got there is is different and i think that that matters uh yeah no i i i, I think you're right um and again it's all about controlling the contours it's just kind of it's just kind of like this weird problem where like the players are going to be curious and you need to have some answer for them um yeah yeah um i also feel like it allows the players to kind of explore the pieces of the world that they find most interesting and most compelling yeah um where you know and and sometimes like doing it the opposite like doing it the opposite way where like things are more linear and less episodic uh, like kind of forces players to care about things that they don't care about in a way um, like, I kind of ran into this problem in Hell's Rebels with, with Rakax, right, who I, I built in a whole bunch of Rahadoom stuff because of what I just assumed because he's, like, Rahadoomy, but he never really latched on to any of those things. So they're all important and integral to the story, um, but, like, also nobody in the party cares about them in the right. same way that you would expect them to. So having having these things be a little bit more plug and play allows the players to kind of like follow their you know, to follow their bliss. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Gwyneth Paltrow would say. Is that a Gwyneth Paltrowism? I have no idea. She just is that kind of person mm. who would say something like kitschy and like it belongs on a poster in an HR department, I guess. I I I, I could believe that. Um, um, I feel like there should be a lot of, um, uh, I feel like there should be like a lot of like kind of textured pieces to this, um, in the sense of like, you know, I keep going back to this Rovago cult, but I feel like there should be some other, you know, factions, so to speak, sort of like, w like moving around and working within the city. Um, did you have any other thoughts about what some of those factions might look like? I mean, so, so primarily it's like the 12, the, like the 12, 13, 14 merchant, houses right like they all have their own kind of um they all have their own motivations and like you know they have like these shady ass like you know it, it, it's it's you know essentially like you know a, a city run by or effectively mob families so like they're, they're all gonna have like these these aspects to them right like um so there there was that that was my primary thing i, I didn't like the the undercity i kind of like was imagining as kind of like a unitary force as like you know like a like a you know, like an, an, another house in a way, but I think you're right. I think that there need to be um, other forces within, within like, you know, that, that are kind of like uh, at play trying to do these kinds of things. Um, uh, but like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I hadn't really thought about it. I, I, like I said, I thought that, that the, the, the biggest factions always were supposed to be the merchant houses. 
um, trying to play against each other. Um, and you know, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Do they all have like a monopoly on a certain like trade or something like that? Like, uh, is there like a weapons producing merchant house and? Yeah, they're militaristic or whatever versus an artistic merchant house, which is more bohemian. Yeah, that, well, so I, I hadn't mapped out what they would be, but the, the idea would be that, yeah, they're, they're all individually in control of, like, certain corners of the market, right? With, like, the Dwarven House being the one that was, like, the, the one that dealt in, like, human capital, right? Like, because they were, they were, they are not, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, slavers. They're the slavers. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was the only one that I had kind of nailed down for for them and like you know something with like the the this the 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 uh the undercity house being like dealing in like um kind of like mechanical technology since they managed to get their island up and floating without magic or whatever um but but yeah the the idea was that like they all had specializations and they all dealt in like um i was thinking like kind of like uh things that were kind of like stuffy and maybe not particularly relevant to the story right like you know like um, like, you know, one house dealt in like, uh, mine, you know, like, like, you know, raw resources, another one dealt in like textiles and, and, you know, maybe, maybe you've had a couple of like weird ones, like one that, one that deals in like, uh, I don't know, something like, uh, uh something, something a little bit more esoteric, like, um, like musical instruments or something like that. I, I, I wasn't quite sure and I haven't nailed those down, but that was, gotcha. That yeah, was the yeah, idea. Yeah. No, that, that that definitely makes sense. I still <coughs> feel Excuse that. Excuse um. what, what, what is the state of, uh, like, druidic or, like, primal magic, you know, all of that kind of stuff, like, wildernessy kind of stuff? Um... So I, I've got two thoughts. I had two thoughts on that. One was that it was it was it was either the purview of like one of the houses, right? Like that was their thing, that or um, that it was kind of like a basically non-existent, right? Like the land beneath the city is is blighted of all suns. So like there's not you know like not a lot grows down there, um, and it's like you know heavily urbanized, um, uh, and like they're, they're elves. So like I feel like there's like some aspect of of that there. Um, but I, I didn't think it was going to be like, um, so it's there in that, like I had imagined that the city was held aloft by some sort of like air magic, right? Like that's, that's kind of like a fundamental thing that there's like, um, that they're, that they're like, you know, restrained in, um, maybe that's, you know, maybe, maybe that's like what one of the houses does, right? It's like a binder of air spirits to like. Get these, like, you know, like, I, I imagine part and parcel of this was, like, airships that, like, kind of, like, ferry these things to and from the, the mm. city. Um, That's how airships work in Eberron. They have, like, elementals bound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would make a certain amount of sense. Yeah. Um, and so, like, it's, it's like, it's definitely a thing that's around, but I don't know if it's anything that's, like, super, uh, super, maybe, huh. That's, that's actually an interesting idea where, like, you know, one of the, like, the, like, there's a the, the houses kind of com- like there there's like a couple of the houses are all competing on like different ways of uh doing this like there's some like there's some ships that are driven by these elementals there's some that are driven by like some pure arcanic ar- arcane magical means right like uh i don't i don't know like permanent wind spells um and there's some that are like mechanical um airships which i think would be like a nice balance that like rounds out like th- Three, like like the house specialties are like arcane magic primal and primal magic and like mechanics and like that's not all they do but it is a point it's like a thing that drives conflict between those three particular houses 
Like, right. Like, the way I wanted to set up, like, these monopolies, and this is why I didn't spend a ton of time putting it together, was I wanted them to be, like, not necessarily things that had, like, a huge impact on, like, what the players did, but there were things where, like, you could see where, like, the edges of what they did overlapped with each other, and that caused a lot of conflict, right? Like, if everybody's super monopolistic and, like, has their own tower that doesn't interfere with anybody else, there's no, like conflict driving driving you know, between the houses right because like, everybody's happy to kind of stay in their lane um but you want like you know like uh you, you know you want like the the textile people and like the uh uh and uh like the the i don't know like the what what, what else could could work in this like the, like the the textile people um provide sales to like the 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 mechanical house to, to push their ships but the other two houses don't need them or you know like the other two no yeah i mean that kind of thing i feel like happens what is it vertical integration no it's horizontal integration yeah. right like when you horizontally integrate right. you still have to deal with like other markets or yeah. whatever right um, but, but the idea is that they would all be kind of like broad enough that you could see where they would conflict with each other yeah. um and they'd be pushing each other out right like you know easiest one is like you know like the guys who do stone and the guys who do wood both are like competing over like who builds like the houses out of what right like you know, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing um i don't know if that particular conflict would work exactly well here but that's kind of like the 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 the, the driving idea behind that behind this this conflict in the clouds as it were do you think that the entire campaign is going to take place on, inside of this one city setting? Or is there going to be any, like, you know, the PCs go to Kionin or go to Chilayax or, you know, sort of like, like they they go on trips outside of the city anywhere? I think that this one stays inside the city. I think that's very much in keeping with kind of, like, the noir theme. Like, I also imagine this kind of floating city to be fairly massive, right? So, like, if you wanted to do, like, a dungeon delve, it would not be, like, out of the question for, like, to be, like, an abandoned sewer system that has something in it, or, right, like, or, you know, like, you know, something in the bedrock that's been sealed away for a number of years and has, like, a bunch of nasties down inside of it. Um, uh, but I definitely wanted to, to, to kind of, like, you know, like, 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 the kind of, like, the, you know, you know like, ah, oh, it's a dirty city, but it's my city type of thing. Um uh so like i i always feel like you know like in in like dc adventures it's always like and then they went outside for a book because we needed to do it and that always feels kind of like chintzy to me um uh not that i thought that you know the way you handled it in hell's rebels was, wow, bad. was some bullshit you guys <laughs> you heard it here first mango hates me <laughs> no yeah i mean i feel like uh i i think it's important to kind of like vary the um you know, like very like the locale for for people, but if the city is big enough to kind of support it, that that that's you know like that's obviously fine. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, this is one of those things where like we've talked about this before, but like like characters that specialize in certain terrains, like I think those things are neat, but like you have to have the right campaign for it, and it's 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 I think it's just yeah. it's a giant trap. Like rangers are a giant trap. Um, it's, it's kind of like the. Uh, the lesson that I take for that kind of, from that kind of thing. Um, is there, um, is there, uh, are there any like, like custom rules or rule sets like diplomacy or anything like that, that you feel like you would need to add in order to keep this game on, on its, on its rocker? Um, I think I might need to do something like we talked about, uh, in previous episodes with like the, the, the tagging system for some, for, 
um, diplomacy, but I think eh, there's a train again. Um, but I, I think that uh, uh, I think that uh, how do I want to put this? That that that's like a, a weakness with the Pathfinder system in general is that the the kind of speaking rules aren't great for anything like beyond uh, kind of like very simplistic interactions. Um, like we, gotcha. we, yeah. we've we've talked about this a lot before, but I, I think I think that the Pathfinder kind of like uh, speech rules are something that are desperately in need of like expansion. Um, uh, but you know, that's that's the way it is. Um, otherwise, just like custom stuff, like um, custom stuff around like campaign traits, custom stuffs around how like these different races act, right? Like you don't get the same set of traits out of um, out of these elves as you do other types of elves um like i said this was like part of like a grand vision for a campaign world which would already have those kind of like well established right like the you know like they're like you know um 5e has this concept of like sub races um i think 2e 2e has some of it too um i think they actually added it in, in an update if i'm remembering correctly it's like this, this sub race idea um so like that, like, you know, you could do a bunch, like you can, uh, you can put in a bunch of stuff for the races and the traits such that, uh, um, you have a, a bunch of that flavor built in, in that way, but that would be a, a larger scale thing. Well, I think that's a pretty complete, yeah. uh, you know, discussion of a pitch. I would very much like to play in this game, except I just spoiled it all for myself. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. As did everybody who listened to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, but that's, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we, we do this to ourselves, you know, right? Like, every time we talk about, like, one of these campaigns, it's like, this sounds really great, but I know the ending now, right? Like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, although I, I think I've forgotten what the big twist of the caravan campaign is, so maybe I could do that now. Oh, uh, God, what was the big twist of the caravan campaign? Well, you forgot I remember to... it was very twisty. I remember it was like, oh! <gasps> yeah. But I don't remember what it was. I, I think it's that <laughs> when you, like, get to, like, the promised land, it's already, like, screwed. Like they've, Oh, they've yeah, 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 yeah. Like Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, that was uh, uh, the campaign pitch. Um, moving into our weeks, I think I'm going to take uh, priority on this one if you don't mind. Go uh, nuts! Because I wanted to talk. Tell me all about it. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Game Awards. Did you watch the Game Awards? I did not watch the Game Awards. <laughs> uh, I sat down and I watched uh, the Game Awards, and I, I had a couple different thoughts. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. No. I, so somebody, somebody online pointed this out: is that like the 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 fundamental lie of the Game Awards is that anybody is watching it for the awards. They're watching it for the premieres and the trailers, and like the the, the awards themselves are the filler. Um, with the exception of maybe <laughs> okay. the theater, yeah. um, uh, which is kind of unfortunate, but you know, I think, I think the way that like gamers are, you couldn't, I don't th like the Oscars are falling off in viewership, right? Like, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think like, I don't think this works any other way. Um, the first thing I want to say is, is, uh, I don't know why half of these presenters are just like normal movie stars or directors or whatever like they had like Jonah Hill presented an award they had like uh, a, a Muppet Pepe the Prawn present an award with with Ninja um, and the, <laughs> Jeff Keely what are you doing that's uh, amazing um, and they had like they had like you know I get like the Russo brothers right like this makes sense it's like vaguely nerd adjacent um, 
they had like it's like every time like like it's clear that they're like I am doing a thing because I have been asked to and not because I understand or like these video game things like I think the the, the funniest one to me was probably like of, of these like weird people it's like the oh it's the front man for like system of a downer panic at the disco I, I forget who who which, which band he was the front man for because I don't listen to a lot of that type of music not that I have anything against it but he's like um, he like made this kind of like sarcastic quip. He's like, I was supposed to write something, but they wrote it for me. He's like, he's like, as a musician, huh? And like, he like goes to his little spiel. It's like, wow, way to fucking like, you know, pull back the veil. Yeah. <laughs> um, somebody actually posted a video. Um, there's like apparently like like facing the stage is like this giant LCD screen that would like flash like wrap it up if they were going too long. I saw that. I saw that because people posted it about. Um... Uh, the the most controversial winner is esports player of the year. What was the guy's name? Sonic. Oh, Fox Sonic Fox. Like yeah, that? yeah. Yeah, who is a gay black furry and called out the Republican Party in his in his winner's speech. And so on Twitter, people were posting the wrap it up sign the <laughs> yeah. sign about how the Game Awards hated that he just like wouldn't shut you know like we wouldn't shut the hell up or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there, there's some other stuff about him too, like. Uh, Stuff, like, the stuff I've seen is, like, maybe he's actually, like, has promoted bestiality in the past. I don't know if any of that's true or not. And he's, like, he's a weird dude. I don't, like, wish him any ill will. Unless I have like, no understanding of him whatsoever, so yeah. I can't even comment. Yeah, um, he's a dude. He had some pretty impressive plays earlier in the year. Like, the big moment he had was um, in, I think it was the DBC finals at EVO. Um, he, like, it got, like, like it's... it's uh, uh, it was like best of something. I forget what. Um, uh, oh, I think I think um, somebody got the recent. I, I forget exactly what it was, but like uh, the first set he played on one side, and then like whatever the situation was, he requested a side change, um, and he had like there was some controversy about whether or not he was allowed to do that or not. Um, mm-hmm. And he did switch sides, and he switched sides, and then like wiped the floor with the guy. And so, like the the consensus is is that like you know maybe that was some marginal advantage, but he probably just kind of like it's called like you know downloading like you know getting like getting the download or whatever, um, you know like you know like he he read his opponent well enough to to pull it off at the end because he he like he reverse swept it after that. But that that was a really hype moment, and he's a really good player regardless of you know whatever else is up with him. Yeah, um, yeah. But you know. Um, other highlights I thought were, uh, or the, the other big highlight for me was they had uh, Chris Judge and Sonny, I forget his last name, um, present an award. Um, they're the voice of Atreus and uh, and and uh, Kratos, um, mm-hmm. and so um, you know it's so they uh, they, they were they, they were like and the winner is and then the the kid like held it and like wouldn't open it for like. 20 seconds and he's like, like after like or after a couple seconds he's like boy read the award and it's like oh you know i, I thought it, i thought you know it was, it was cheesy <laughs> but i thought it was good um uh but otherwise like the biggest surprise like i was surprised that god of war won it over red dead redemption 2 i don't think that's wrong i actually agree with that sentiment um that it was i think god of war was a better game than red mm. dead redemption but i just didn't think that they would think that i was really interested by that because Sony Santa Monica is like, it's just an interesting studio, and I you never hear good things coming out of it, and now they have a now they have a best game of the yeah. year award, which is just kind of crazy. Yeah. Um. 
okay, so the so the other big thing this is this is kind of like the big point I wanted to make about it um, was uh, so at the beginning like Jeff Keeley has has said like I've been working on I've, I've got this moment that's going to come out in the show I've been trying to make it happen for five years and it's finally happened I'm super excited for this right and this big moment is is towards the beginning of the show he gets Reggie Fizeme. Um, Phil Spencer, and I forget the Sony executive's name, but he gets all, all the three executives from the big three out on the stage mm. together to introduce the show. And you can tell that, like, he, he, you know, he's Jeff Keighley's keeping his his composure, but you can tell that this is, like, a thing that means a lot to him, right? Like, that yeah. that he's got the entire industry out here to celebrate it, that, like, um, and, you know, it's a cheesy advertising show, but, you know, it is it is a realish award show at this point. Um, and so, like, I kinda, my kind of takeaway after that is, like, you know, people give Jeff Keighley a lot of shit for, like, the Doritos Pope thing, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, I think that the way the way history should remember it is, like, not that, like, Jeff Keighley is a sellout. It's that Jeff Keighley is a man who believed in the Game Awards so hard that he was willing to sell him, like sell himself on the street to make sure it happened, right? Like, you know, like, it's not, like, the dirty whore. It's the dirty whore that's providing for his kid because he believes in it so much, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I hope that history remembers him that way because he's, like, you know, you can criticize the Game Awards, and I think it has a lot of criticisms that you could level at it. But he definitely cares about the industry, and he definitely cared about making this thing real to lend legitimacy to the industry, and I have to applaud him for that. Um, uh and so that, that that was kind of my my big overarching take takeaway from it is that like, you know, is that like for all its cheesiness and like corporatism, it's still like a legitimate celebration of the uh, uh, of of the kind of like gamer community, for lack of a better term. I remember um, a couple of years ago, the extra credits guys put out a video about um, the lack of essentially the game awards, right? How, um, and, and they talked specifically about how the presence of the Oscars creates a secondary kind of like subsistence market for different kinds of movies, because what it allows you to do is if you are, you know, uh, if you're making, if you're making like a prestige picture or whatever, winning best picture turns that prestige movie into a movie that you can then like market as a best picture winner right uh and it gets you a bunch of like fame and acclaim and all this other kind of stuff and how a similar system could be really helpful for video games right where you kind of have a secondary market that allows you to make games and market them differently than just this is the must play blockbuster game of the year sort of thing um in order to like in order to get like get that I don't know. In order to get that like good good stuff, you, you to find the moonlight of video games, you sort of need to have a um, uh, you you sort of need to have a version of the the Oscars, and that the Game Awards is hypothetically going to become that, even if it isn't necessarily at this moment. Um, I don't know how true that is or how great that is. I mean, from like the film side of things, people complain about that aspect of. Um, so do you know what I mean? People he, complain constantly about that aspect of the uh, of the of the Oscars because like you know the Dark Knight doesn't win in two thousand and eight or whatever, or like Black Panther isn't gonna win this year or whatever it is. So I, I I've got to I've got to counter this because I don't I don't think that's quite right. I think so. This is the thing I've been thinking about a little while just because because of um 
some like terms things, right? Like games comes out of an enthusiast market, right? Like like you know, like ten years ago, gamers like gamer was like not only the the sole participant, but it was also like um, the enthusiast. If this makes sense, right? Like this is a thing that comes up sometimes when people talk about like, well, anybody who plays games is a gamer, and it's like, yes, but no, because like gamer was the enthusiast term because there weren't casual gamers a while ago, and so like, the the language around that is kind of confusing, and maybe we should come up with a different label. Did you do you follow me so far with with that? Yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, and so like, I think that like the like God of War and Red Dead Redemption and like maybe even Spider Man are like these prestige games, right? Like, our blockbusters are like the Call of Duties and the FIFAs, right? Those are the ones that, like, don't get acknowledgement and any of, like, don't get anything but, like, the most cursory of acknowledgement at these at this award show. And I think that's because, um, you know, while the cinephiles drive the, um, the, the kind of, like, uh, the, the prestige picture kind of aspect of it, um, they're not kind of, like, as big a part of the audience as like or as part of like the general audience as i think gamers are of like the game consuming audience if that makes sense mm-hmm. um like or, or maybe it's just kind of like a matter of exposure right like only only enthusiasts care about like the game awards so like they're they're already playing and there's enough of them that they drive like like god of war and red dead redemption are triple a games that are going to sell like gangbusters right but they are yeah. kind of like these these passion project siren songs um uh, as opposed to like your Call of Duties, um, and so I think that the Game Awards doesn't exist, doesn't need to exist in order for those to come out. But I do think it it, it works well as like a community touchstone type thing, I, and I think that's kind of like what this the show is aimed at, and I think that's like kind of maybe what like like it has been aimed at so far as like is like the idea of like um, kind of like the games enthusiast community as something more than just kind of like. A general grouping like movie like you know moviegoers are everybody right like um mm-hmm. and increasingly um people who play games are everybody but games enthusiasts i think are a large but definitely identifiable group if that makes sense and so yeah i mean the the only winners of the game awards have all been like big big titles right dragon age inquisition the witcher 3 overwatch breath of the wild God of War are the five winners since the inception of the Game Awards in um, in 2014. But I definitely feel the... Um, I guess I definitely feel what you're putting down. I think that that makes, like, a, lot of, uh, ma- that makes a lot of sense. Boy, 2014 was a crazy year for the Game Awards. I forgot how many Hearthstone came out as a mobile game that year and won mobile game of the year. Far Cry 4 and Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor were both of that year. Grand Theft Auto V... Um, wow. Anyway. Uh, um, you know what? That, that's, that's like, you know, like if there was ever a game of the year snub, it's that Fortnite didn't win it this year. Um, it won it some other outlet gave Fortnite game of the year. Um, but like, you know, like that's kind of like the comparison, I think, right? Like Fortnite, which is undoubtedly. Yeah, I th- okay. That's actually super fair, right? Like Infinity War is not going to get movie of the year, but like Black Panther might or something kind of along those lines. And so. You know, in the same way that, like, last year we had Get Out, right, which was in the best picture contenders, but, you know, Wonder Woman or whatever was kind of, like, disqualified. I actually kind of feel like that's pretty fair, um, as much as I don't understand or know Fortnite, because I've never even touched Fortnite, but I wouldn't want to be in a world where it's like, okay, well, whatever, you know, game makes it 
you know, blasts onto the scene and becomes like the biggest flash in the pan game ever. I mean, last year it would have been PUBG, right? You know, and I think that that would have kind of been a mistake in a way. Yeah, so, so this is weird because like I want to like make a point about like you know the games as art um, win at, at at like the uh, versus like the games as sport. But last year Overwatch won, and like Overwatch is definitely games as sport game. Yeah. Um, unless you consider the extended universe, that's a that's a really weird quite like a weird kind of root effect. Yeah, I mean that that was kind of what we were getting at the other day in a way. It's kind of like saying that like okay. I was thinking about this when it comes to, like, the NFL or the NHL or something like that. But, like, imagine if there was, like, a really complicated backstory to, like, the term Giants from the New York Giants. You know what I mean? Like, there was, like, world building that went into that or something kind of along those lines. I feel like in, in conventional sports, all of those things are kind of just... You know, like they're 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 kind of left by the wayside to a certain extent, and inside of the game itself, right? Like, you know, inside of the game itself, there is absolutely nothing. There is no lore to it. It is all literal, just rules, right? Um, I, I and I feel like that's like an interesting thing when you compare it to Overwatch or League of Legends or Hearthstone or something, where like, you know, these things all have an intrinsic lore to them. Right, it could be true that every Hearthstone card could be named, you know, common one twenty three, and it has four health and three attack, and it's a three cost card, or so, you know, like whatever, the, like the stats and the effects are, or whatever. But no, it's called Piloted Shredder, or yeah. it's called you know whatever it is. See, see, this is interesting because like there is some of that, right? Like you know, to, to put it in terms that like, like you might be more familiar with, like this is the same type of thing you see with like esports, right? Like you know, like even his teacher calls him uh, Zion Spartan, right? Like yeah, yeah. Um, like there are stories about individual players, right? Like there are stories of franchises. Um, um, it's not a, a equally applicable to all of them, right? Like the Yankees have a long and storied history, um, and like maybe like the uh, uh, I don't know what's what's a like the Milwaukee Brewers don't, um, but like, uh, uh, so there's some of that. I see, but I see what I see what you're getting at. Um, it, it's yeah. defi- it's definitely like of of a different kind with with Overwatch specifically. Um, yeah, I mean Overwatch and League of Legends follow the the same thing, right? Like they don't have a story. I mean, well, okay, so I would say that they have a story, but they don't have a plot, right? There isn't a forward moving. Um, there aren't, like, plot points or beats or something. There's just, like, a setting and characters and an aesthetic, right? And even themes or whatever. But there is no, there is no, you know, moving from plot point A to plot point B. In the same way that, like, for instance, in, you know, uh, World of Warcraft, there's moving from plot point A to plot point B or something, right? Which is a game that contains esports of some variety, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm um, very I'm very mad that none of the none of the esports things mentioned Hearthstone stuff. This is some bullshit. Froden obviously should have been. I don't know. I don't even know if he counts as a host. Yeah. I'm just making this. <laughs> I'm just making this all up. <laughs> yeah, I mean the esports ones were kind of also rapid fired through. Like none of them. Like like those were like those were I think renounced during the pre-show. Like there were a handful of awards that were like um, Jeff Keighley just read them off and like no one accepted yeah. it or anything. Um, the biggest esports one was like like streamer of the or you know con- i forget what the term they use but it went to uh it ninja, went to ninja right? yeah content creator or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. ninja um yeah i don't think i mentioned I, I don't think i knew any of the names on that on that list um 
No, my, my <laughs> just because I don't follow like Fortnite. It would be really interesting to me. I think if uh, uh, it would be really interesting to me if like the inception of Fortnite kind of broke the like the tie that I have to like the you know the core modern mainstream gaming culture because I don't play Fortnite. And I'm still, you know, I'm still playing, like, World of Warcraft. I don't know. I've, I've been seeing a lot of people talking about this kind of thing when it comes to WoW. We were just like, oh, you know, I'm quitting after 10 years or something like that. I'm like, damn, like, 10 years this guy's been playing the game. But, like, yeah, I've been playing it for 15 years or whatever. And I just feel like a game like World of Warcraft is aging into a game for 30-year-olds rather than being a game for 16-year-olds when it was released, you know? Yeah, no, I, I definitely... I definitely feel that. Um, another thing, the, the, maybe the last thing I want to bring out of Game Awards is um, there were a couple of announcements, and the one that I think has got the most hype around it is Outer Worlds by by uh, Obsidian. Um, but the the the, uh, the the greatest part of it was that uh, um, like the advertisement campaign was like from like the original creators of Fallout and the people behind New Vegas, right? And like this is just mm-hmm. like a knife in like Todd Howard's heart, right? Like, and you know, yeah, it was. <laughs> It was obviously all put together way before Fallout 76 was this trash fire that it was, but it's just kind of like the confluence of everything is just like hilarious. Um, yeah, I've seen I've seen a couple of the you know like I watched the Dragon Age 4 trailer, which I don't understand because I didn't finish all of the DLC in Dragon Age Inquisition. So I am now you you got me you got me Bioware. I am now loading up Dragon Age Inquisition for a replay. Um, so that I can understand who, like, the Dread Wolf Rises refers to. Uh, see, I, um, I, was, I was hoping you would answer my answer my question as to who that was. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm Because pre- I'm pretty sure it's something... This happens actually a lot with the Bioware games, where um, the final DLC of a game will also be kind of like a, a, uh, a, a tease or a tie-in to the next game. This happened with Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect 3. Mm. Um, and the cool part about that was that, like, the tie-in was much more immediate. Um, Mass Effect 2 comes out in 2010. Mass Effect 3 comes out in 2013. It has been five years since um, since Dragon Age Inquisition came out. So I'm in need of a little bit of a refresher course, you guys. Yeah, um, and, like, like, you know, it was a nothing trailer. And uh, according to, like, the sources that, it, like, you know, um, the producer on the game was, like, I've been, like, working on Anthem this entire time. And other people, people have been exploring stuff for Dragon Age 4. So, like... I'm pretty sure that's not coming out for another couple of years or so. Jason Schreier, yeah, Jason Schreier confirmed they got rebooted last year, that they had done a bunch of work on it, but that mm. they changed um, how they wanted to do things, kind of. Th- this was more implied, he didn't say this, but to me, that lines up very perfectly with Mass Effect Andromeda, which came out early last year, right? So, hypothetically speaking, they published Mass Effect Andromeda and then did a course correction, quote-unquote, on, uh, on Dragon Age 4. I would... I would not be surprised to see or uh, see or see or hear that. I also think it would be a little bit weird for Bioware to put out two games in a year because obviously Anthem comes out this year. Yeah, are, um, are and you excited for Anthem? More of it. I am. Uh, I, I Bioware has a lot of good faith from me. I even liked Mass Effect Andromeda. And hypothetically speaking, if they just pitched this game as it's Mass Effect Andromeda but an MMO, I would probably be down for it because I thought like the combat controls and everything was so fun in Andromeda. Um, so yes, I am hyped for Andromeda. Or I'm sorry, I am hyped for Anthem from that perspective. I am not very 
enthusiastic to see. I just don't have a lot of time to play a lot of games, and we're going to see how it comes down. Um, obviously, um, you know, Total War of the Three Kingdoms comes out next year. Um, you know, we're going to see uh, more. You know, I'm just going to keep playing World of Warcraft and Hearthstone probably, right? Like, these are games that are pretty well rooted into my my daily existence i'm even going back i mean you know we've been talking about uh ck2 but like stellaris just came out with a new um with a new dlc that looks really cool and i'm probably going to pull out the um the the mega the mega corpse uh dlc to play some stellaris there's just like a lot of good stuff coming out this year and so i don't want to say like oh i'm so super crazy hyped for anthem because if anthem turns out to be the next fallout 76 which i think is possible um you know yeah that could be trouble i agree um yeah I, i've also got it like that that period like this this like uh, february to like april is gonna be crazy there's that there's um uh there's what's the other games there's devil may cry 5 there's uh sekiro shadows like twice there's yeah um well, there's a couple others too, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, there, there's a lot coming out that I'm super excited for um, in, in that span. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think Anthem comes out for a while, though. I thought it was February. Does Anthem release? Oh, is it February? I think that's what they Holy said. Holy shit, it's February 22nd. Yeah. For some reason, I thought it was coming out in... Uh, I thought it was coming out in September. I was like, oh, it's like... A year away or whatever. Yeah, wow, boy, fucking damn, Feb, Feb, February. Um, I did, yeah. So I have heard that there is going to be a like like a demo or something like that. Uh, let me actually take a look at this so I don't say something stupid. Okay, so there is going to be a demo in January, um, and there will be a demo in the first week of February, the first weekend in February. So, yeah. So, my big plan is to play the demo to see if I want to, like, actually kind of, like, buy into it. I also don't know that I would necessarily mind playing it kind of like I play Destiny 2 as, like, a single-player game where I don't participate in much of that, the end-game content, you know? Um, just to, like, run around being shooty guys or whatever, right? Like, that's pretty fun. And, you know, if there is enough content to get me to a 30-hour playtime, maybe, um, you know, I, I, I will probably feel pretty okay about that. Um, yeah, no, that, 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 that sounds about right. Um, uh, yeah. So, um... What else? Um, oh, the other thing that I can talk about this week is I played uh, Smash. I played a bunch Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Smush. Smush, yes. <laughs> I played some Smush yesterday. I haven't dug too deep into it. Um, the like First impressions, it's a Smash game. It's a good-feeling Smash game. Um, you know, um, I'm no by no means an, an expert, but uh, I've been going through the World of Light thing. It's neat. The stickers are... The spirits, rather, not stickers, are neat, but, like, whatever. Um, the only kind of like cap the only thing that I that I'm not a super huge fan of is uh, that all the characters are locked um, or um, almost all of them are locked initially and I find that to be annoying more than anything else um, and I would like to just play my uh, my <laughs> I would just like to be able to unlock my favorite character so I can play him and play him online who are your who are your favorite characters um, so I play a lot of uh, Ganondorf 
Um, okay. I, I also play some Duck Hunt. Um, but I also want to check out the Belmonts and uh, and and Incineroar because Incineroar seems like he'll 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 be like my style of play. So uh, I'm excited for that. What what is like is Incineroar's kind of like thing? He's like that a makes grappler him your style of play. He, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, cool. yeah. Um, the, during his announcement, there were like some very clear allusions to Zangief. Like they announced him right after Ken, um, and like his his uh, his neutral B is like a lariat, um, and he's like. Uh, you almost might say he's a red cyclone, which is like a direct reference to Zangief. I'm like, oh, um, gotcha. Because uh, you know I'm a big Zangief fan. Um, uh, uh, but uh, what? So we only got a couple of minutes left. But did you want to say anything about your week? Uh, I haven't really been doing all that much. I've been preparing for the new WoW patch, which comes out um, on Tuesday. Um, and the interesting thing is that they're doing uh, heritage armor for base races and the blood elves and the dwarves are getting the first set of of heritage armor that comes out with 8.1 so i have been and part of the requirements to get these heritage armors is to be level 120 and uh, and to be exalted with like your whatever like your city faction iron forge silver moon respectively and i was not exalted with either of those um so i was basically spending a, a lot of the week running old dungeons on Cliffgrove, my dwarf, and Serathin, my uh, my blood elf, to rep up, because like basically the best way to rep up is to put on those tabards yeah. and do the, the old dungeons. But the problem is is that they did they they um they introduced something called trivial uh, they like if you are more than ten levels above the content, that content is then trivial. So you re- you get reduced. Um, you only get twenty percent of like the rep gains that you would normally get. So like every mob you kill would normally give you fifteen points, but instead you only get three. So I was just running these things over and over and over again, uh, and that actually sounds awesome. But I gotta be honest, it was actually pretty fun. Just because uh, I was getting a lot of um, transmog that I really thought was cool. Um, and it was, you know, a nice, cheap, easy sort of break from the game while I'm watching, like, Twitch streams of the new Hearthstone decks. So, there's that. Um, yeah. Neat. I'm very excited also because this coming week is going to bring the single-player content for the new Hearthstone expansion um, which is going to be like the dungeon runs from Kobolds and Catacombs or the Witchwood, um, but where you choose a class based on... Do you know, like, any of the, the Rastakhan's Rumble, like, lore sort of setup or anything like that? I do not. Yeah, so the idea with Rastakhan's Rumble is that, like, every 20 years, once a generation, all of the trolls gather in the Gurubashi Arena to, like, duke it out, um, and there are, and they, they, like, pledge themselves to, like, each of the different, like, Loa, right? And so, in Hearthstone terms, this comes down to every, um, class got a Loa, and also got a champion of that Loa, um, so some of these are, like, famous trolls from lore, like Zul'jin, uh, is a hunter hero who is the who is the the um, the champion of the Lynx Loa Halazi or whatever and like Hexlord Malakras who is I'm pretty sure a uh, a Zul'Gurub um, boss from like the original ZG the level sixty uh, raid ZG from Vanilla uh, he was a um, 
he was like one of like these legendary cards or whatever. So I, I am very excited to dig into, to dig into that and get back into sort of like the PVE side of things. So this has been a very good expansion for warriors in general. So I've been playing a lot of hearthstone, um, just in general. Yeah. Excellent. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that's, uh, all the stuff we had time for. Um, but if you want to talk about it, okay, so we're good. Um, if you want to get in touch with us and tell us what you think about um, Rossicon's Rebel or Smush or any of the other things we talked about on this podcast, like uh, the campaign that we just pitched, um, you can reach us at simdurfsplaygames at gmail.com or podcast at simdurfsplaygames.com. You can follow us on twitch.tv slash simdurfsplaygames. You haven't been on there in a while, but we're going to try and finish Hell's Rebels this month, right? Yeah, I, we need people to respond to the thing. Yeah. Hypothetically speaking, we're trying really hard. <laughs> um. And then uh, we don't have any plans, I think, for anything else. But we'll we'll let you know on this podcast if you want to know. Um, what else? Uh, you can rate us and review us on iTunes. You can like us. You can comment on SoundCloud where we normally are. You can uh, uh, these go up on YouTube. Although I think I forgot to do the last one, so forgive me if that's the case. But that will be up soon. Um, uh, I think that that's everything I had. But did you have anything else you want to promote? I have nothing else that I'm looking to promote. In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.